I, um, I read about a young father recently. He was in the Ku Klux Klan. Chris and his fellow Klansmen spent their days threatening anyone who wasn't white, conservative, American, and their brand of Christianity. And when they weren't busy threatening people, they were recruiting. Chris was, by his own admission, quite accomplished at burning crosses on the front lawns of his Latino and African-American neighbors in his hometown. He and his comrades carried weapons with them wherever they went, usually hidden underneath their robes, even at peace rallies. Most were high on drugs when they worked, he said, and Chris himself was addicted to meth. Now, without going into the very heart-wrenching and tragic tale of his own upbringing, suffice it to say that Chris learned how to hate at home. Feminism was stupid. Homosexuality was wrong. Whites only dated whites, period. End of story. In the army, Chris learned to hate Muslims. In fact, every paper target that he shot at during weapons practice depicted a Muslim. And combat training often involved his fellow soldiers, American soldiers, dressed in what he called Muslim clothing. At home, after his deployment, when he returned, he felt as though he had to pick sides in this ongoing debate that seemed to be raging both politically and socially in the United States. And so Chris picked white. Everything else was then easy to hate. Now, Chris spent several years in the Klan training these new recruits, beating those who threatened to leave the Klan, until one day his young son, mirroring his own dad's rhetoric, made a brazenly racist remark in the middle of Walmart, and it left Chris a little uneasy, he said. Well, that unease was all that his wife needed. And she intervened with the support of an informal sort of underground railroad that existed to help people who wanted out of the Klan. Chris was able, finally, to break free. It wasn't easy and it wasn't fast, but there were helpers and they were persistent and they were loving as Chris battled his way through this. Very slowly, a change began to take place. First, Chris got clean and sober. He got away from the Klan for good, and he began working at a nearby homeless shelter where he provided care for, of all people, African Americans. The very people he had intentionally chosen to hate, he now helped. So Chris was finally ready for the real test, they decided. His underground mentor set him up with a blind date of sorts, an immigrant from the Middle East, now a doctor living in the United States, a citizen, and a Muslim. The two men met in person and shared some personal childhood stories which were remarkably alike, given the distance between the two. They also talked about one another's religions and the effects of Chris's KKK days on his family. The well-heeled doctor brought toys for Chris's children, 
who took him by the hand and toured him around their neighborhood. In Chris's words, he said, he began to feel the hate dropping away. What I find interesting about this story, besides the entire thing, is that Chris was transforming before our very eyes, but why? The preacher in me wants to know, where is the conversion part of the story? Was he born again? Did he have some fall-on-his-knees moment in a back alley somewhere and was delivered? Were there bright lights and angels singing? Can I really even use this story in a sermon if Chris doesn't even talk about God in his transformation? And then I reread today's scripture where Paul says Christ died for all, and therefore all have died. And I know that all means all. I don't know the trajectory of Chris's path other than what I read. I read this story in the newspaper last week. I don't know his story any more than we can know anyone's personal journey. But I do think it would be a bit of an insult to God to suggest that God wasn't there. God is in everything. God is in the margins and in the back alleys. And God is there with the meth addicts and the parents who are frankly horrible role models by anybody's standards. And yes, God is even there in the midst of young men clad in robes and wielding torches in the night. Christ died for all, therefore all have died. If you've ever been told you'll never change, or you've said that about someone else, Paul would likely add, no, but God can change you through Christ. Remember that in the Old Testament, in the ancient Jewish system of sacrifice, humans atoned for their sins, that is, they became in harmony with God again through the blood of a sacrificial animal. And by the way, this was radical in its day because most of the gods worshipped by other ancient religions required human sacrifice. So God did away with that, thankfully. Sacrificing an animal, though, meant that the blood of the animal could take the place of the blood of the person offering the sacrifice in penitence for their sin, for their falling away from God. This same idea was continued into the New Testament, of course, where Christ's death on the cross was seen to be the final and ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. Christ died for all. We have no idea when someone's heart will turn, but we know this, we are already forgiven. And here's some good news. God never gives up on us. Never gives up on when that heart will turn. We might drive ourselves further and further away from God, and we might lose heart over someone else's journey, but God never gives up. God is patient, allowing us to take all the time we need. Jesus said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. 
That can only happen if he is right there, already with us. Think about that. He is already with us so that when we open the door, he is right there with us. There is no expiration date on that offer. No sin so great that the offer is canceled. The moment we have an aha moment or a new realization or a change of heart or a glimmer of recognition that God offers a life greater than the one we are currently living, whatever state we might be in, the door is opened. And God promises also never to leave us, never to forsake us. That comes from Hebrews, the chapter 13, by the way. And I want to be clear that it does not say, I will never leave you or forsake you, if. It does not say, I will never leave you or forsake you, unless. It doesn't say, I will never leave you or forsake you, but. It says, I will never leave you or forsake you, period. When I hear a story like the one that I described this morning, I realize my own shortcomings. Because my first thought was not, oh, that young man is so filled with hate, but he is still a child of God. Trust me when I tell you my first thought was something just a little more judgy. (laughs) Which is why Paul tells us we need to change our point of view. People tend to think that Jesus looks with favor on those whose outward appearances seem to suggest to us a kind of pious Christian life. People who carry around their good works and saintly smiles, and they actually believe that they have it all made. And we forget that Jesus loved the sinners, those people who were so far away, as far away from knowing and loving God as they could get. You know Jesus hung out with the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the adulterers, women, despicable characters of all sorts. Jesus would have absolutely been hanging out with Chris and his ilk. And Paul explicitly reminds us this morning that we need to view these people through Christ's eyes not our own. From now on, he says, we regard no one from a human point of view. Why? Because Christ made all things new, even and especially for the most unlikely of sinners. I love what the book of Romans says. At just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still separated from God, Jesus died for us, for all of us. As sin increases, grace overflows. Grace says, come, follow me. God's grace is a gift that is freely given. We don't do anything to earn it, none of us. And to regard people not from a human point of view means we are to look at everyone, our children, our neighbors, the Chris's of the world, everyone from the standpoint of grace and mercy 
and forgiveness. In fact, we might do well to look at ourselves this way from time to time as well. Maybe you've heard this little story, which I recently read in the great book, Ragamuffin Gospel. Many years ago, rumors spread that a certain woman was having visions of Jesus. When the local priest caught wind of it, he questioned her, and then he skeptically said to her, the next time you see Jesus, I want you to ask him what I confessed at my last confession. And the woman was stunned. She said, did I hear you correctly? You want me to ask Jesus to tell me your sins? And the priest said, exactly. Let me know how it goes. He was a little skeptical. So some time passed, and she visited the priest, and she said, I have some news. I asked Jesus to tell me the sins you confessed in your last confession. Well, the priest sat down, and he leaned in close, and he said, yes, go on. Tell me, what did Jesus say? And she said, these were Jesus' exact words. I can't remember. (laughs) Your sins, however great, however small, are but an atom to God. Not only forgiven, but totally forgotten. It's not up to us to recreate ourselves. It is God who wipes the slate clean and makes us a brand new creation. Nadia Boltz Weber says, grace is God's way of saying, I love the world too much to let your sin define you and be the final word. I am the God who makes all things new. Sometimes it's a miraculous change of heart. Other times it happens slowly, painfully slowly. But change is happening in all of us because we have all been raised with Christ. Christ died and rose from the dead, and he stands ready for us to open the door, even a crack, even with one of those little hotel chains latched over it so that when we open it, we think it gives us some sort of ridiculous sense of security or control over the interruption that God causes in our lives. Like, oh, hey, Jesus, looking through the crack. I thought it was room service. (laughs) Jesus doesn't care. One crack will do. The light comes in. That's all Jesus needs. And Jesus is relentlessly patient, far more than you and I would be with each other. The kingdom of heaven is made up of all of us. Those who have been sitting in pews their whole lives and those who are afraid that lightning is going to strike if they so much as drive in our parking lot. God is with each and every one of us, regardless of how offensive sin may seem to us. Because he sent his only son to die for all. And the good news is that when our Christian response to that unimaginable sacrifice is to regard all people not from our flawed and failed human point of view, but with the eyes and the ears and the heart of Jesus, then we begin to create the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Will you pray with me, please?